Acts 20 is what we want to look at uh, today. Uh, we're taking a little hiatus away from uh, the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at verses 17 to 38. Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17 through 38. Please follow as I read. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears, and now I commend to you, commend you to God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive, when he had said these things, he knelt and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come to you thanking you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to each of us. You have sent your Holy Spirit to be among us, and we ask that he would be our teacher, pointing us to the Savior who presents us faultless before the Father. We ask these things in the name of the living word, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
It was a uh, graduation service for uh, graduates of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, uh, men who would be going out into the ministry. And the speaker said something that I found strange at first hearing. And he said, what we, what we don't need is more Bible expository preachers. I thought, what? We don't need more Bible expository preachers? And then he said, he went on to say, what we need is more apostolic preachers. In other words, we need preachers who are going to be faithful to that body of truth that has been handed down to us from the apostles. And what is that body of truth? Well, we have it in the text before us. In a few words, it is the whole counsel of God. Now, anybody can take a passage of Scripture and dissect it every which way and make it say a lot of things. What's the story of David and Goliath about, for example? Is it about slaying the giants in your life, or is the story of David and Goliath about David's greater son and the kingdom of God? Things like that. In this passage before us, we have Paul's parting words to the Ephesian elders, elders, pastors, overseers, bishops of the Greek, all the same, the same uh, title, really, same function. He spent a considerable amount of time there, about three years, and so as you were leaving a church, what would be uppermost in your mind? Uh, would you be concerned about the internal structure of the church? Are all the biblical offices in place? Would you want to make sure that the style of music and worship is appropriate? Uh, and so Paul, in, in his letter to the Ephesians, he addressed matters of structure and style. But in the final analysis, his concern was for the whole counsel of God, and it must be ours also. So the point I want to make today, in order to be faithful to the Word of God, we must be committed to teaching, learning, and living the whole counsel of God. What does that involve? Well, it's a task that requires passion. It's a task that is accompanied by risks. And it's a task that is intentionally local but worldwide in its application. Well, what do we mean by the whole counsel of God? It is the will of God as given in the Word of God that covers every area of our lives. It is that single unified story of redemption that begins in Genesis, whose climax is in the coming of Christ, culminating in his second coming. Thinking in terms of major themes of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, written later from prison, it is the faithful proclamation of God's sovereign choice in election and our obligation to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. We wonder in our finite minds how to harmonize the two, but we believe that they are perfectly harmonious in the mind of God. It's the gospel message of salvation by grace received by faith. It's about our relationships with one another in marriage and family in the church. It's about the Christian's armor that enables us to persevere in the spiritual warfare that is in the Christian life. These are but some of the things that are included in the whole counsel of God. It's a task, first of all, then, it's a task that requires passion. 
Paul describes his ministry in verse 19, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. He was in good company, being a man of passion. Moses was a man of passion. Then there was Elijah, a man of like passions as we are. There's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. There's John the Baptist calling for radical change. And we think of Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus and in, uh, weeping over Jerusalem and in Gethsemane. Well, what are these tears of which Paul speaks? They're tears that speak of humility. They're the tears of someone who knows firsthand the depths of his own sin and the magnitude of the grace of God and forgiveness. They're the tears of one who, have, having experienced the grace of God and forgiveness, does not look at the unbeliever with disdain and disgust, but rather with sorrow because they are still blinded by sin and enslaved to it. And it also should be self-evident that anything that's worth doing in this life, by the way, is done with passion, with fervency, with zeal. Why do we understand this in every other part of life? We certainly understand it in sports, uh, in business, in teaching, and, and so many other areas of life. Jesus tells us that at the end of the age that the hearts of many will grow cold. May it not be said of us here at Seven Hills. Notice how deeply these Ephesian elders loved Paul. When he had said this, he knelt down with them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see him again. They accompanied him to the ship. There was certainly high emotion, not here just for Paul, but for the Christ whom he represented. But they had become recipients of the incomparable riches of his grace. But what happened to this same Ephesian church years later? Well, when we come to the book of Revelation, we read the sad story to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and was among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place. What a scary thought. You've lost your first love. In spite of all the wonderful things that we could commend this church for. The whole counsel of God must engage our entire being. We don't compartmentalize our lives. It's not, well, you know, this faith is good, but I want you to know that uh, when we get out there, a guy's got to make a buck. No, we don't, we don't compartmentalize our lives like this. The initial point of conversion when a person first comes to Christ is a paradigm for our entire lives. That if you confess with your mouth, the Apostle says, uh, Apostle Paul in Romans, 
you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. The confession of our mouths plus the conviction of our hearts equals passion. What do we confess with our mouths? We confess that Jesus is Lord. This is not simply speaking the words. The confession of the mouth is is our whole demeanor, the way that we communicate with the outside world, the way that we act, the way that we talk, our attitudes, and so on. We believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. Yes, we must believe in the resurrection of Christ, that he really actually rose again from the dead in space, time, and history, but that is really shorthand to believe in the resurrection is to believe the entire enterprise that is the gospel that God sending his son into the world to save sinners. So the confession of our mouths and the conviction of our hearts equals passion for God. And this is the prerequisite for embracing the whole counsel of God if we would have anything to commend to this world. Secondly, this is a task that is accompanied with risks. Look at the text again. And now, behold, I am coming to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Consider Paul's life. He comes to faith on the road to Damascus. He starts preaching the gospel, and then he's got a hot-footed out of town because his life is in danger. Later on, he hears the Macedonian call, and he goes to Philippi, and he's beaten there, thrown in jail. And the text before us, he is, in effect, escaping a riot at Ephesus, and he's on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to face arrest. Notice that he considers his life as worth nothing to him. He was willing to to take risks. That's how things are accomplished. When we know that the Lord is in what we're doing, we don't have to worry about ourselves. How do we know that the Lord is in what we're doing? Here are some ways. There are others. Here are some ways that I found. What we're doing is first and foremost in line with the Word of God, that which ultimately binds our consciences. Then there is the sense of our own personal calling. We've maybe kept it to ourselves uh, for a period of time. We pray about it. And then we are faithful to the things each day that we know uh, God has called us to, to live a holy life, to live uh, for Jesus, and so on. And we share that calling at some point with those who are in spiritual authority. They pray about it, and eventually the church confirms that calling or does not confirm that calling. Sometimes we're still not sure and circumstances outside our control will have to inform us one way or the other. No matter what our calling, let us be reminded that any honest day's work in the sight of God is holy, and, but yet we're still going to have to be willing to take risks when it comes to the gospel 
and living our lives before a watching world. To repeat, when we know that the Lord is in what we're doing, we don't have to worry about ourselves. Fifty-some years ago, a few of us crazy people in our 20s, uh, we drove into New York City with uh, our three-month-old baby. And Jeannie and I sat there on a park bench there in the Bronx, not the nicest neighborhood in New York, in where we were. And we sort of huddled together for protection as we looked around us and said, do we really want to live here? And we weren't sure about that for some time, but 45 years later, I guess we were supposed to be there. The Lord has done wonderful things. But we need to be willing to take risks, and we, were, we had a, a team with us that, would, that was willing to take risks. The church at Seven Hills, on Seven Hills is in a good position right now. People are being added to the body of Christ. The gospel is being preached. People are coming to Christ. Uh, there's various kinds of ministries going on, and it's really exciting. It's really exciting to, to watch, and it's one of the things that attracted us to this church. And all of this is important for the work of the kingdom. All the things that are going on, from the most mundane task to the most, quote, unquote, spiritual task. It's all spiritual as far as I'm concerned. Now let's stretch ourselves by taking some risks. The risk-free life is a life surrendered to defeat. Let's stick our necks out and build relationships in the community so that we can invite them to church. Not an easy thing to do, I'm discovering, in New England. Uh, having people over for dinner, what a risky thought that is. I even thought about the ministry in the school over here at Burncoat Prep. Maybe sending a letter home to parents, asking them if we could teach them Bible stories. That's a suggestion. Uh, but wouldn't that be a coup to be able to do that in, in the uh, <coughs> public school with the parents' permission? If they say no, well, we respect the decision. But let's look for ways that we can stretch ourselves beyond where we are right now. So when God is in it, we can move forward with kingdom work without being imprudent. I don't, you know, I don't like boring. And one of the things that I liked about our life in New York is it was never boring, hardly ever boring. I don't like boring. I don't like bland. Don't give me vanilla ice cream. I want Friendly's Forbidden Chocolate, please. Uh, look, we're on this wilderness journey, and it could be a howling wilderness of a different type than Sinai, but a wilderness nevertheless. But the Lord promises to be with us every step of the way, and God always keeps his promises. We're on the winning side. What's the winning side? The kingdom of God, the increase of which there will be no end. So let's set the example for the next generation that we not be housebroken, that we, armed with the whole counsel of God and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, that we are willing to walk on the wild side. While we're talking about being faithful to the Word of God, we must be committed to teaching, learning, and living the whole counsel of God. We saw that it's a task that requires passion, that it's a task that is accompanied by risks, 
And thirdly, it's a task that is intentionally local, but worldwide in its application. Looking at the text again, the apostle says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Why didn't Paul in his final time match out a, map out a strategy for reaching all of Ephesus? Hey, they could have rented out the big amphitheater there, brought in a Christian rock group, fly in a big-name evangelist like Apollos. Why? Because the way to reach the world is not only through the principle of addition, but multiplication. Yes, you can have our big meetings, our big evangelistic meetings, but the vast majority of people that have come to Christ have come to Christ through the friendship of one person to another person. Even the people that might have come to Christ through a big evangelistic meeting was invited by a friend. So we, we look and we ought to look for disciples reproducing disciplers. We have a man in our church who came to Christ about 15 years ago, and he's got a great sports outreach ministry now in New York City, New York Christian Athletic League, and it's meeting a real need, and the gospel is being preached. So embedded in the Great Commission is the command to build the church. You make disciples through the gospel, calling them to repentance and faith, and then you gather them into the church. And what do you do in the church? You teach them the law and the gospel. That is, in the proclamation of the word of God, we are always confronted with God's standard and our need for righteousness. And we discover in the gospel that the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. What a great blessing. We call that imputed righteousness. This isn't just some heady theological talk. This is a doctrine that's been come under challenge in recent years, that Christ's righteousness is not imputable. Well, that just rocked me when I first read that, and I had to go back to the Word of God, that it is... When we come to Christ in faith, the righteousness of Christ becomes credited to us. The Apostle Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own, that righteousness is credited to us so that we can be now, by faith, righteous. Notice that it is in the church where we are urged to keep watch over ourselves, our lives, our conduct, so that we will do nothing to dishonor the name of Christ before a watching world. When we say church, we're not talking about a building. Church is not something you go to. Church is a caring, sharing, 
covenanting together community of believers committed to Christ and thereby to one another. But it is also in the church where we have to be on guard against savage wolves. We certainly had to be on guard in New York City. People very subtly come in, making slight alterations in the message that over time would have serious effects of the gospel. And we must always be on guard against that. That's why we not only need elders who are, and pastors who are theologically trained, but also we need an informed laity. Now, I know when we hear the word theology, I think of a friend of mine years ago, Bob, we don't need all this doctoring stuff. We just need to go by the Bible. Well, yes, we do. The Bible's our ultimate authority. But I want you to know everyone's a theologian. Everyone has an idea about God. Everyone has an idea about sin. Everyone has an idea about salvation and so on. It's just, we just have to make sure that our ideas about God and salvation and so on are in line with the Word of God. So the apostle commends the Ephesian elders. He commends them to the whole counsel of God. That assumes that the church body is likewise committed. If, if the elders, the pastors are committed, then you've got to be committed also. That means uh, we must be students of his word. We never stop studying the word of God. Even at my age, we never stop studying the word of God. I think I'm older than most of you. Fathers, husbands, Heads of households, it is your covenantal responsibility to carry out your spiritual leadership with your children. You are the spiritual head of the household. No, I did not say you ought to be the spiritual head. I didn't say you ought to work into it. No, you are the spiritual head by virtue of the fact that you are the husband, you are the father, or you are otherwise the head of the household. And so the only question is, is whether you are a good spiritual head or a negligent one. God is like an artist. You know what an artist does to, to communicate truth? He, he, he or she communicates universal truths by being very particular. And so to carry out his program in the history of redemption, God, like that artist, chooses a man, chooses Abraham, and you all, the families of the earth, will be blessed. From Abraham, we get Isaac, not Ishmael. From Isaac, we get Jacob, not Esau. From Jacob, we get Judah. From Judah, we get David. From David, we get the Messiah. And all, along the way, he demonstrates his universal intent for his gospel to the entire world. Yes, God chose the nation of Israel as a kind of repository for a period of time to preserve the teachings of the Word of God, but it was always, always with a view towards reaching the entire world. So he chooses Rahab 
the Canaanite harlot, Ruth, the Moabites, the Moabites being traditional enemies of Israel. These Canaanites become part of the Messianic line. The psalmist prays in Psalm 67 and other places as well, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. He commands Jonah to preach to those wretched Ninevites. And Jesus overturns the money chambers, changers in the temple, uh, criticizing them for commercialization of religion, declaring God's purpose that in that temple my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That is a place of worship. <coughs> Paul's intention in proclaiming the whole counsel of God was universal in scope also. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks. Now, Greeks here is not people from Greece, but Gentiles, testifying both to Jews and Gentiles of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it must be for us. The gospel is not just for us, it's for the nations. And when we think nations, don't think country, think people groups, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, people from every tribe and nation and tongue will be around the throne. And may that multi-ethnic pattern continue to be demonstrated here at Seven Hills. It's not an option for us. Rather, it's a matter of which we must always be aware that the pastor and elders are to be committed to the whole counsel of God. You are thereby commanded to embrace it. We must be committed to teaching and learning and living the whole counsel of God. It's a task that requires passion. It's a task that is accompanied by risks. It's a task that is intentionally local but worldwide in its application. Why embrace the whole counsel of God? Because this is reality. You and I do not want to live in a make-believe world. The world out there is fake. Now, when I don't mean when I say world, I don't mean the world of nature. I, when I when I use the word world in, in the biblical context, it's usually a way of thinking that leads to a way of acting. And the world mistakenly thinks that it can create its own reality, it cannot. Desi really didn't love Lucy. Reality TV is not real. Diversity does not produce equality. Feminism has not liberated women. The gay life is not gay. And free love comes at a high price. This is God's world. He defines reality. And so let's be about the business of learning that reality by embracing the whole counsel of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us the means of grace, the means by which we are strengthened, we are nurtured, we are built up, and you do that, first and foremost, in your church. And we ask, O oh God, that you would continue to be at work here in this body as you are, for which we give you thanks. 
And may we be the people of God who, who love you more than anything else, who love one another and love speaking about you in a world that is watching us. And now, Lord, as we receive the morning offering, we are, we are grateful to you for supplying all of our needs according to your riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.